to really ensure that you lead effectively under pressure at the extreme when you're in the arena, whether that be in business, in sport, the height of competition or, or, or on the battlefield. You can't just turn on leadership in that context. What enables successful leadership in those sort of environments are nurtured in the days, weeks, months, years, even decades before. Hence, leadership, good leadership, effective leadership, that social relationship, that interpersonal relationship has to be nurtured every single day. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello. Today, I'm talking to and learning from Langley Sharp. The British Army. Amazing leaders, command and control. Do they know anything about psychological safety? These are some of the things I'm going to be talking to Langley about today. He heads up the Centre for Army Leadership. It's part of the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst. It's not bit of Sandhurst that all cadets go through, but it's the bit of Sandhurst where they have codified over the last five years what leadership means in the British Army and how to develop leaders within the Army. So we talk about what are some of the principles of leadership in the Army. We talk about the difference between being a peacetime leader and a wartime leader and what training for adversity looks like. Because if you get it wrong when you're leading a team of soldiers in combat, and you don't make the right decisions quickly enough, people can die. So we talk about how you build to, how you train people to make the right decisions. And some of it is falling back on command and control, but there's lots of other nuances. And and now the army has codified its leadership, and Langley has written a fantastic book called The Habit of Excellence, that talks through this, but also weaves in the book, he weaves it through and he mentions a couple of these examples when we're speaking. Some really personal examples of where, you know, people have won a Victoria Cross for their cat badge, for their mates. And what, how, how would we bring that into the world of business? Fantastic conversation with Langley. I enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. My name is Langley Sharp. I'm a member of the Parachute Regiment. I've been an officer in the Parachute Regiment for now almost 22 years and I've commanded all the way up to the battalion level, and I'm now head up the Centre for Army Leadership based out of the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. What made you want to join the Army? Did you want to join the Army? Did you want to join the Parachute Regiment? What came first? Neither. <laughs> Neither? Okay, right. Neither. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I say that uh, partly in jest, but um, partly not. So I, I I went to university. I'd always been interested in the in the military. I did a bit of cadets, and I did the officer training corps, um, which is a bit like the 
um, reserves for students, if you like, at, uh, at, at university. But I never really wanted to join. And I remember after my first year, I sat down with the um, the officer that was in charge of us and I said, um, I'm just not enjoying myself. I don't see the, the attraction in this as a career at all. And he said, um, I, I said, so I'm going to quit. He said, no problem. He said, just go on the summer camp and do a bit of adventure training and then come back in September and we'll have another talk. And if you still feel the same again, then, um, then, then fine. And I was there four years later, absolutely loving it. But even at the end of university, I didn't really know that I wanted to join. And then a friend of mine said, um, well, you really need to go and um, have a go at se- the selection, the officer selection. Um, you know, just give it a go. And if um, if you like it, then you've got you've got a career choice there. And he said, oh, by the way, I've also put you on a, a look at life for a couple of days with the paras. I said, I don't even know if you want to join the army, let alone the parachute regiment. <laughs> but, uh, but I managed to pass both and, um, and went to Sandhurst in 1999 and fortunately was accepted into the parachute regiment. And I've never looked back. Best, best years of my life. And so... In what conflicts have you served? Northern Ireland was my first tour. Um, the, the battalion, the second battalion, of the parachute regiment was on on tour there halfway through a six month when I joined them, uh, fresh out of training. And uh, a few months after that, we were in Afghanistan in 2001 for the first time. And I've done multiple tours out there since the last one in 2013. Macedonia uh, or northern Macedonia now and Iraq as well. A couple of tours to Iraq. And now you're... You're running the leadership centre at Santos, which is where you, that's what you went through to train to be an officer. Yes, I went through the Royal Military Academy Santos. So all officers that join do a year there as part of their initial training, um, uh, regardless of what part of the army they then um, uh, move into, and then they're going to do their sort of trade-specific training after that. So we are based there, but we are not actually part of the cadet facing side. So we're an army resource, and we were set up five years ago. Um, in the aftermath of a an almost year-long uh, institutional review of leadership that was directed by then head of the army. Uh, and we were set up to really be the, the conscience, if you like, for leadership for the army. So a small team that, that does the thinking and calibrates the army's thinking on leadership. And so that, that's what our purpose is. We own the doctrine. We wrote and own the doctrine, which is the codification, our philosophy of leadership. And we do a lot of work um, both internally and with external stakeholders across multiple other sectors to understand um, how people how people do leadership and where it, where it's uh, applicable for, for for us as an organisation. And how how critical is getting that right to the success of military campaigns? Do you think? I, I think the word critical is is exactly what it is. I'd say that leadership underpins everything we do. It, it defines our success and our failures, good and bad. So if you think about what the army exists to do in, in its at the most extreme end of, of, of what we are here to deliver, it's about fighting wars. And it's about delivering on operations in the most extreme environments when um, individuals are pushed to their physical and mental limits of endurance. And we often describe our operational effectiveness uh, through the concept of uh, fighting power. And that's made up of the physical, the conceptual and the moral. So the physical is the the means to fight, it's our people, our equipment. The conceptual is our knowledge and our understanding, our doctrine and how we learn. And the moral is the will to fight um, and maintaining the will to fight both ethically and, and, and morally. 
And leadership underpins all that. It sits within the moral component, but it absolutely underpins it all. And if you think of warfare as a, a contest of wills, where you seek to um, defeat the enemy's will, break the enemy's will, and, and protect your own, your leadership sits at the heart of that. And uh, and and CGS would often describe the uh, the concept of, of of motivating your people when every sinew and fibre of your body is telling you to do otherwise wants you to move in the other direction you need to motivate your people to go forward in pursuit of the mission then leadership is probably then particularly the will to fight is probably at the heart of every great military success or failure you know from Agincourt to the fall of Singapore you know there's there's if if there, if those people had been led differently the outcome could have been very different yeah absolutely I mean it's it's a fundamentally human endeavor um, and that's what we say and that's why and many organizations say this now, you know, uh, the people are there, are their sort of vital ground, their, their critical capability. And um, but, but our head of the army would say, you know, people are the army, not just in the army. And I think it gets to the heart of that. It's about maintaining people's willpower when when, we, when you're pushed to your extremes. How do you do that? Ultimately, that's through through leadership, through motivating people, through inspiring people. And is there a difference between leadership in the bits of the army that aren't at the front end because uh, i know I don't, I don't know what i don't know what the percentage is now we were just talking before we came on the air and you know during the second world war only 25 percent of people in the army ever got shot at or shot at people and you know what what's the mix now what proportion of if you're in the army what proportion of people are getting shot at or do the shooting versus the rest of them and it, is leadership then different in those two bits um, I wouldn't say it's two bits, but there are, there, there's always a clearly a spectrum, and, and, and often say that leadership is contextual. So the fundamentals of how we lead, or indeed how you lead in sport, in business, in academia, or elsewhere, the fundamentals are are, are the same. But it's it's the context that that changes, and, and for sure, there's different elements of the army. Um, their their roles dictate that they are in uh, uh, you know different exposure, if you like, traditionally in in combat. I, I, I couldn't tell you percentages, but just by way of reference, in Afghanistan, at our peak, I think we had about 10,000 people uh, deployed, and only 700 of them were actually going out the front gate and putting themselves in, in harm's way. That said, you know, there were still people who were um, uh, based in bases, you know, logisticians, medics, and others, who were, who were still uh, in a combat zone. So was still getting mortared. They still get mortared, rocketed. They still had to move around. Um, and actually, I think Afghanistan and Iraq was a really good example of whereby you know the army, sort of, in, in terms of that exposure to combat, the army, uh, everyone, everyone was exposed. It's almost sort of flattened that uh, that um, sort of traditional concept of of the teeth arms. You know, your cavalry and infantry at the front, and and then you had this sort of long tail uh, behind. But in in Afghanistan, you know, everyone was involved in. In, in the war, you had logisticians who were moving kit and equipment around uh, the battle space. Uh, you had medics, clearly, as always, right up on the on the, on the front line. Uh, uh, intelligence personnel out on patrol, um, signalers, you know, in, 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 at the forefront. So, in, in those sort of scenarios, it, it, you know, this linear battlefield of old, it does doesn't really exist as much anymore. Mm-hmm. And is there a do you have the concept of sort of peacetime and wartime? 
because quite often quite often when people are using sort of an army analogy and applying it to business you know they often say oh you know are you a peacetime ceo or are you a wartime ceo you know are you are you about the operations and or are you about you know winning you know sales and marketing yeah i mean inevitably there is there is a difference because of the nature of when you're in uh, wartime again the context is quite different and actually in terms of leadership what i found and many others that when you are on operations leadership is a lot easier because because you have single focus you don't have life's pressures day-to-day um uh, family dynamics and to get the, your car fixed or you know on your iphone whatever it may be um you, 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 your children keeping you awake at night you have single focus core purpose everyone is in it together and um, there's a, a lower risk threshold in terms of getting things done less bureaucracy um and 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 you get up in the morning you have one job to do and everyone is focused and it's the job you all join to do so actually leadership in that environment can be can be easier except in the extreme that we've uh, we've we've discussed whereas in peacetime and I think you'll see this in any organization, when things slow down, that's when it's actually quite uh, a little bit more difficult. And certainly some of the challenges that the army face today and are often manifesting in peacetime. But what I would say, and I guess this is this comes to the heart of the, the book and why the t- title of the book is The Habit of Excellence, is because to really ensure that you lead effectively under pressure at the extreme when you're in the arena, whether that be in business, in sport, uh, you know, the height of competition or, or, or on the battlefield. You can't just turn on leadership in that context. What enables successful leadership in those sort of environments are nurtured in the days, weeks, months, years, even decades before. Hence, leadership, good leadership, effective leadership, that social relationship, that interpersonal relationship has to be nurtured every single day, 24-7, 365, to enable you to, to deliver effectively under pressure. I'm fascinated by the idea that the army decided to codify leadership. So talk me, like, you know, what was the outcome of that? The, the outcome, the physical outcome was a, was an A5 booklet called our army leadership doctrine. Um, circa 80 pages of it's quite, quite simple, quite illustrative, which, which explains our philosophy. But I guess the, um, the surprise that many people have is although that we've, we've, we as an organization have, believed in the importance of leadership and developing our leaders for decades and centuries the first time we codified that was five years ago in 2017 and we're circa 360 years old so it begs the question what was, what did we do before and, and as I, I talk about in the book actually we're on a journey of professionalization and and one of the turning points i mean we've been professionalized as an army for for, for, for centuries one of the key turning points uh, was in the 1980s, certainly when doctrine uh, was was brought in, and we codified how we fight and how we prepare t- uh, to fight. Um, but leadership doctrine wasn't written then, and I think there was always an aversion because people see it as such a personal thing. You know, it goes back to uh, Phil Marshall's slim great great quote about um, leadership is just plain you, uh, and he's absolutely right. It, it, it is. Everyone's different. Everyone's got their own personality, style, character, strengths, weaknesses, biases. So leadership is very personal. But I think unless you have an institutional position, it's hard to it's hard to train and educate people effectively. It's hard to build a collective capability. 
and it's hard to hold people to account if 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 they're not meeting the standards you expect. So you see, it's it's interesting. I I suspect uh, having read a book about the history of his his war um, is that he did that naturally, right? Whereas there are some people who you know often people find it very difficult to think about their strength when it's their strength they can they can admire strength in other people but what they do is just what they do and that should be easy for everybody you know so i suspect having you know read the book about his war that you know that came easier to him than it did to some of the other people i guess it gets to the question of you know are leaders born or made and i'm a firm believer that leaders are are made and the army's got that view it may have been different 200 years ago but there certainly that there are individuals because of their upbringing, the way they've been nurtured and developed and the opportunities that they've had or not have really shaped who they are and, and, and perhaps given them certain qualities that make them more effective uh, as leaders instinctively. What would be the most surprising thing in that doctrine, leadership doctrine, you think, from reading it from outside the army? Speaking to a number of people from different sectors who know very little about the military, they would view the military in a very old-fashioned way. See, it's very strictly hierarchical, very transactional in our approach. Lots of people shout at each other. You know, the classic <laughs> type of, you know, the burly sergeant major with a big moustache on the parade square pointing uh, uh, his stick at someone. I say him because, you know, very sort of de- male-dominated environments but, uh, with lots of authority. And, and I think that's people's perception even today. But the reality is very different. Now, what I've just described, there's an element of that exists. You know, we do have a clearly defined hierarchy. We do have a discipline system, and we have that for, for, for good reason. Um, but but the, the day-to-day reality of, of how we lead and how our people are motivated and, and, and developed is, is, is starkly different. And it, and it really exists on, a, on this sort of spectrum from that sort of transactional approach when required but day to day, it's far more sort of transformational in terms of, as I say, sort of motivating and inspiring people. And, uh, uh, and I think having that blend, and the best leaders are a- able to move along that spectrum really effectively. And you see it in business where it almost becomes um, uh, decision by committee because they haven't got that, that structure and that hierarchy and that and that uh, and that sort of um, organisational rigidity to fall back on when necessary. And, and, and that can become dangerous because it, it, it results in uh, indecision or ineffective decisions. I guess that was probably at the heart of my observation about wartime and, and peacetime is that in wartime, you organisations that succeed or there's a sort of faster metabolic rate. And what you're saying is, you know, if you're in conflict, you can't, you don't survive long if you haven't worked on how do you make quick decisions? How do we gather the intelligence? How do we make a decision? How do we move forward? Otherwise, you just, you're going to either get killed or be just paralyzed by indecision. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, decision-making sits at the heart and managing risk sits at the heart of whatever leader is really there to, to do at whatever level. And you're right, we're very fortunate in the in the military and in the army whereby, you know, we, we don't spend a lot of time on operations um, and actually, we spend more time training and preparing, and so we have that luxury that we can we can test ourselves. But but actually, the most advances, uh, the greatest advances in terms of our capability, are often made on operations uh, because they set the conditions for tri- uh, trial and error and, 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 and learning and development. 
Um, it also gets to the, the point about command, and we define command leadership and management differently, but all, all also inter- interrelated. But it also gets to the point of mission command. So command is about the the authority that is invested in an individual and the accountability and the responsibility that comes with that authority. And we have this thing, again, it came into being in the 1980s uh, called mission command, which is our principle, which is my philosophy, which you, you'll, you'll probably heard of and understand that that's about not to telling people, it's about telling people what to do and why, but not how to do it. And it's about empowering your people within set parameters you, you give them and supporting your people, but allowing your people the, the, the freedom to, to to act upon your your intent. And I think going to your point about the difference between peace and war, we are we tend to be very good at mission command in war. We're very comfortable with delegating uh, control and decision making to the lowest level where is where it's necessary to enable speed of action on the battlefield. What you don't want is, you know, the senior leader standing on you know the wellington stand on the top of the hill directing everything in the battle and everyone waiting for clear orders it just doesn't work like that there is no speed there and the enemy will get ahead of your decision making and you'll lose so we're, so we're pretty good at it in, in war but we struggle to do that back in peacetime and what you tend to find is that certain um, parts of the organization sort of fall back into this more rigid and bureaucratic hierarchical system which doesn't always uh, blend well what do you do as the Centre for Leadership then to help prepare people for, to develop skills around mission command? I'm, I'm fascinated. The reason I'm fascinated is because actually I think that is the bit that lots of organisations suffer with. And they suffer with it because what happens is you get promoted because you were good at the job. So you're a software developer or you're a salesperson and you become the sales manager or head of software development. And then what you don't have is you, you haven't developed any skills to manage the team or enable the team's success and so you keep jumping back in or you when you delegate a task to somebody you expect them to do it the way you did it which is which is sort of inherent in mission command is that i'm going to tell you what i expect but how you get there is up to you because the conditions in the ground might not be how i think they are and and you know if that's how the army do it then that's fascinating because so few organizations actually know how to train that complicated answer but i guess the central armor leadership in terms of our actual delivery we, we don't we don't do that so we we focus on the thinking and the doctrine uh, the awareness uh, and also influencing policy to ensure that our training and education pipelines which and we've got a pretty robust one for both officers and soldiers has the right leadership elements in that R- really actually it's our it's the chain of command you know you would heard the expression probably used it many times you know leaders develop leaders so it's where we really learn is in the everyday. It's in our everyday experience. It's in, it's in our everyday training. It's in barracks. It's, it's almost in everything we do. And so much of, of, of the way people develop would depend on the, you know, the ability of the leaders around them to nurture that. Uh, as I say, but we have got a, a, a pretty good um, development pipeline so that every career transition point as people move up the rank structure, they get both a training and an, and an education uh, package, if you like, inject that, um, that, that that gives them the latest thinking, and then that they, then that gets um, uh, taken on back in their unit by by their own chain of command. I think one thing that we are looking at um, to, to, to what we've described as the next stage of professionalising British Army leadership is leader development. And one thing that I think where we are now, we've done a lot. Certainly in the last 10, 20 years, we've come very far in developing our leadership 
training and educating our leadership. So the broader concepts, the doctrine, for example, is a one-size-fits-all doctrine, which is, is fit for the fundamentals for a private soldier all the way through to the head of the army. But where we need to go next is to refine in the development of our people to the individual requirements of every, every single leader. Now, that's quite ambitious, but we've just had a 10-year project signed off by the Executive Committee of the Army, Project Bramall, which gets after this. So it'll be underpinned by research, a leader competency framework. It will help um, support the, the management of our talent, uh, the sort of career development of our, t- of our talent, but also sort of refining the training and education of our people so they focus more on individual needs. And I think that's where we really, that will take us to the next level. And today, who measures leadership competency? It's a very good question. At the moment, we don't have an effective way of measuring leadership across the army or indeed an objective way of of individual leaders' competencies. We have a reporting profile and people um, get reported on and leadership is an aspect of that. Is it top down or bottom up? It's top down. And I think that's one of the issues we're trying to grapple with. So the reporting, we've got a pretty good, I'd say, annual reporting cycle in terms of you set your objectives uh, with your uh, line manager at the beginning of the year. Then you have a pretty, it should be a pretty robust mid-year appraisal tells you your strengths and weaknesses and then the, your, your your line manager is there to, to support you to develop until the end of the year when you get your final report. And when it's done well, it's it's quite an effective system. But the issue is, uh, as we as we are um, have stated many times, is that you're reported on by your first line manager and their senior, what we call a first reporting officer and second reporting officer. And the reality is that neither of those are led by you. So one of the things we're proposing is, well, how do you then get feedback from in our case, your subordinates, those you are leading, who who are the recipients of your leadership behaviours every single day. And if, if you get that upward feedback, um, you know, that's really powerful. And that adds to the evidence of, of how effective you are as a leader. But it also gets to the heart of self-awareness. And if you're really going to develop properly as an individual, you need to be self-aware. You need to know what you know the effects of your, your behaviours on, on others. And I think that will be the game changer for the army in terms of developing, as I say, our individual leaders, which are then develop our collective leadership capability. Okay. The habit of excellence. Why why write the book? To help the rest of the world understand how the British Army thinks about leadership? Well, if I go back a couple of years, it's actually the brainchild of Professor Lloyd Clark, who is the director of research at the, the Central Army Leadership at Cal and was my mentor throughout the process. And I should say the book was definitely a team effort, and there are a number of people that contributed it, and Lloyd was at the heart of this. And he's a published author himself, so um, uh, he was doing some research a couple of years ago, and he said, I, I can't find a, a single holistic account of, of British Army leadership. There, there are lots of accounts of the British Army through history or particular famous leaders at points in time, but nothing that drew it all together. And because, as I say, um, we, we've had an institutional position, the, the doctrine that was written five years ago, we've now got a basis from which we can say, right, this is what the British Army thinks about leadership. This is where it's come from. And, and this is how it works in, in, in context. So, so in part, it was we felt there was a, a gap in that understanding. In terms of the audience, um, a number really... Internally, it was about developing an understanding for our own organisation and our own people and to provide a platform for discussion and debate. But it was also, as we were discussing before we came on, it was to give a perspective to other sectors and other parts of society um, about a 
uh, a context of leadership that perhaps a lot of people are not exposed to. And um, right or wrong, people often come to the army uh, for a view on leadership. Um, but as I say, it's not, sometimes that's filled with misperceptions about the reality of how we do it. So really it was a, an offering to others to, to give a perspective in a particular context to the debate. And what, what do you think the army's, you know, different organisations have different strengths and weaknesses? Well, what do you think in terms of, is it, is it building trust? Is that, is that a core tenant of the way in which the, you know, you, you'd expect great leaders in the army to work, which might not be the same in, in industry or? Interestingly, I think some of our strengths are also potentially some of our weaknesses. One I've already talked about, I think the, back, the fact that we've got a, a quite a, um, a, a hierarchy and a discipline system that underpins that, actually day to day, it's not about enforcing that, that rigid discipline, it's about self-discipline. But I think that that, that structure enables us, enables leaders to work effectively along, along that uh, spectrum of leadership. Um, I think our culture is particularly manifested through the regimental system, which really sits at the heart of um, people's sense of belonging and people's identity, which can be very, very powerful in, in achieving uh, outcomes. Um, and our quick vignettes, and I put it in the book, one of my last corporals won the Victoria Cross uh, on a tour we were on in 2013 in Afghanistan. When you ask him why he did what he did, um, as always, as many soldiers say, I did it for my mates left and right of me. But he also said, I did it for this. And he pointed to the cap badge, the parachute regiment cap badge. He said, because that's what is expected of me. And, and it's that sense of that sense of identity of, of living up to the standards of your of your forebears that is, is very, very powerful. So I think there, there's those elements. And, and the fact that we understand the importance of leadership and how it's a force multiplier and therefore we invest so heavily in it. But I guess the there's weaknesses to that as well. Um, you know, inherent weaknesses of, of, of being too hierarchical. You know, people live in their, uh, live in their authority in, 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 their, in their position. Um, and there's also a danger where culture can become insular and, and you look just in, inside your own team and in, in, in your own identity and uh, to the detriment of those outside. And, when, and inevitably, the nature of, of, of what we do, we're a team of teams. That's what the army is, as McChrystal would say. Um, and I think that, you know, it can be dangerous when you have regiments and corps and cap badges that, uh, that, that have an elitist approach and, 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 and don't work as effectively uh, uh, as, a, as a team. Amy Edmondson came up with this concept of psychological safety. And she's just, Thinkers 50 have just said, you know, she's the number one management thinker in the world at the moment. Um, you know, if you're in a, if you're in a, platoon or a squad or a troop or you know one would think from the outside that the hierarchical nature of the organization would mean that you know it, you don't create psychological safety that people aren't aren't able to or feel able to contradict what their officers or higher ups are suggesting you know is that is that really true in the army or or when it works best is intelligence or observation or information able to flow up for the good of the team? So I think this is a classic example of command, uh, the difference between command and leadership. And the best leaders will create the conditions for psychological safety. And I, uh, and, and I agree, and there's, there's plenty of evidence, you know, the Google, the Google uh, uh, research being one um, classic example of how important psych psychological safety is. 
I, I think it's all about uh, it's a lot about belonging as well. So we talk about diversity and inclusion, inclusion, but increasingly we talk about belonging. And I think when people feel genuinely part of the team and valued and feel like they can add value, then you've got psychological safety. And that absolutely exists um, in, in the army. There's very strong, and I've personally experienced that quite a lot throughout my career. Um, but that said, I think our hierarchical system does put constraints in the way. And, it, and a lot of it is, is, is unconscious and therefore, I, I as a leader in certain positions have had to create the conditions for people to open up and air their, air their views. You know, as a commanding officer, so in charge of, say, 750-odd people as I, as I was, um, if I was speaking to a, a group of private soldiers who, who didn't know me, you know, all they, all they would see was, is this chasm of, uh, you know, between their rank, their rank and my rank. And, uh, you know, they just wouldn't be able to open up and um, and express themselves as freely as perhaps they, they'd want to, just because of the na- nature of how um, they're, they're trained and nurtured to a certain extent. But if you set the right conditions, um, and I often, when I was a commanding officer, I often used to go and see um, my my people, my troops uh, in various parts of the world. They'd be on training and operations. And I'd always sit them down in, in, in different groups. Myself, my regimental sergeant major, who's my right-hand man, a senior soldier. And, and we'd often do it by by rank groupings, so private lance corporals and corporals, and I'd, I'd give them my views on what was going on in the units and what my expect, expectations were, and they said, right, floor's open. What, what's what's going right? What's going wrong? You guarantee you ask that question, they tell you what's going wrong. Such <laughs> um, is the nature. But, but that's exactly what you want. And um, and sometimes there's stunned silence, particularly if it's a, sort of a younger audience you don't know. But, you know, you know one or two characters, you encourage them to talk. And then before you know it, if you set that environment right, then, um, you know, the conversation flows. And I think it's really, really powerful. But but, but a le- that's where the leader has got to set the, the conditions for, for, to, to enable psychological safety in any organisation. What, what do you do if you find, you know, there you are with 750 men? How many officers would you have had? Oh, good question. Um, circa 80-odd. Uh, how many of those, because you, you don't get to hire them, they're there, you, get, you end up running the battalion. How many of those 80 would you have enthusiastically rehired if you had the choice? I mean, across my career, I've been very fortunate, and not least because um, I'm in a slight advantage being a member of the parachute regiment in, in, in that we've got a selection process, not just to get in the army, um, but also then to, to get into the, into the parachute regiment. So we tend to uh, select some good characters. Um, and I should say that of my 750, I had multiple different cap badges, not just parachute regiment, and so men and women from across the army. So I think that's uh, – there's, there's very few that I had, I was fortunate to have under my command that I, that I, I didn't want there. I mean, I could probably count on a number of hands um, how many people that didn't quite fit the mark. It's very fortunate. And not just, not just officers as well. I mean uh, – you know, some of the best leaders and leadership I've seen throughout my time has, has, has been emanating from our from our soldiers, from our non-commissioned officers. Are you able to get rid of people if they're any if they're no good, or is it like just so hard? You, you can do. I don't think it's as easy as it might be in, in in the corporate world, for example. If people are just not performing at their job, and there's enough evidence for that, you, absolutely, you can move them on. You tend to find in on operations, it's easier because the risks associated with having people that can't do their job are much greater. I think people in some organisations and some sectors, 
people will get rid of others too soon. Um, and I've seen it in plenty of occasions. And in fact, one of them is illustrated in, in the book from my regimental sergeant major when he was a command uh, company sergeant major. I, I think some people write others off too soon and they're not prepared to put the time in to develop them, develop their, their areas of, uh, of need. And I guess the other thing must be true. You said some people are easier to move on under operations. There must be some people who thrive in operations and didn't before. Do you know what I mean? Like they come into their own. And vice versa. Those that thrive in, in peacetime and are very effective leaders, confident, professional. Um, when they when the pressure is on, they just don't deliver as, as one would expect. So it works both ways, definitely. And you never know. I was, well, I was, I was just going to say, how, how do you find out before you get to operations? But you, you, it's hard, I guess. To put people under pressure, I mean, there's a nature of our training. We put people under a lot of pressure. And both soldiers and officers, right from the get-go, within days, weeks of joining the army, you know, they are put into environments which test them physically and, and mentally. And, and, and you obviously build on that and you build that sort of uh, physical and mental resilience as, 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 you, as you develop. But in terms of, I guess, what you might be getting to in terms of extreme of being shot at, uh, you just don't know until you're in that environment. Mm. You see, I, as you talk, it seems, it seems that the the army is much more akin to a high performing sports team, right? Who spend, you know, I don't know. You take England rugby team or you know whatever, right? You know, they train a lot and they play a little, and also there's fifteen of them on the field, but there's hundreds in the back room making you know if that team wins it's not just the team on the field it's it, it's an effort of years of practice which is sort of different to business because in business we get up every day and bumble along right you know like the the, the level of pressure you know in some organizations is different but you know often you know that the pace of the organization it is what it is you know there's not you know there tends not to be a high point in the year or a low point in the year it's it's sort of constant as opposed to you know a peak i guess so but i i, I always worry about broad generalizations across for example the whole of sport whole of business but i absolutely see where you're getting to but in terms of business i mean that the highest performed businesses will be will have the pressure all the time will be very creative and innovative always pushing the boundaries so their people are always always sort of on their own a game as they would be in an elite sport i think there are um, obvious and natural synergies between the military and elite sport i i think one of the biggest differences is however that in, in elite sport you know what you you're, you're training for you know that the pitch is going to be a certain size the opposition is going to uh, be a certain number the rules of the of the game are x y and z in the military, we just don't know where we're going to be next. I mean, if you look at the last 12 months, what the military has been involved in, you know, um, extracting our, our Afghan friends from, from Afghanistan, um, supporting allies and partners in, in Europe and um, operations in Mali, the UN operations in Mali, supporting COVID response, driving fuel trucks, uh, the, the list goes on. So I think for from the military perspective, agility is absolutely key for us. So we have a sort of baseline of competency um, to be able to operate under pressure, uh, to have that agility to, to, to adapt to different tasks. Uh, but, but, but unlike elite sport, we, we don't know what we're going to face when we go out yeah. the door. 
Um, Langley, if if you look back now, what what is it you know now that you wish you wish you'd known earlier? Quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think it's around education, and I was fortunate. I had a, I enjoyed education. I left university, and I got to that point where I was just saturated, and I didn't want to touch a book for another ten years. And I went back to education again five or so years ago uh, and I love learning and I love reading but there was a good 15 years in the middle where I just got on with my day job and I probably didn't read and educate and develop myself um, intellectually as as much as I perhaps should have and uh, so I think if I had my time again I'd read more. Okay very good and taking the subject of reading so a uh, habit of habit of excellence available from all good booksellers buy it now perfect christmas present um what what else have you read along the way that you think uh, other people should pick up and have a flick through what have you got i think the first one is matthew side's rebel ideas which i only wrote recently i read recently okay i think it's a fascinating book um and 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 extremely well uh, articulates as I'm not doing now ex- um, extremely well uh, um, articulates the importance of cognitive diversity which I think is particularly important to uh, to organizations like the army there's there's two other books I, I, I draw on uh, and they're both a, a little bit dark and morbid but the lessons from them are, are fascinating uh, the first one is um, Black Hearts by Jim Frederick which is about a US platoon and uh, an operational tour in 2005 in what was called the Triangle of Death in Iraq. Um, the it's a really tragic story, um, and, and I won't spoil what the, the conclusion of it. But it but it but it effectively a platoon descends into into chaos and um, and, and committed a, a horrific crime. But actually, the book doesn't dwell too much on the outcome. It was about why did it happen in the first place, and ultimately, it was a failure of leadership, sort of top to bottom. And I think it's a fascinating insight when things go wrong. The other book um, is Ordinary Men, and it's about the Reserve Police Battalion 101, German police battalion in uh, in Poland, and, as, and their involvement in in the Holocaust. and And it's very tough reading, but it's it's not necessarily about the Holocaust. It's it's about the group dynamics of conformity, uh, deference to authority, um, adapting moral norms to justify your behaviour. And at the heart of what Christopher Browning is saying is that these were just ordinary people led to undertake horrific uh, outcomes. Um, and I think it's a really disturbing but fascinating insight into uh, human dynamics. Uh, not, not necessarily in a good way, but it's an, an important read, I'd say. Okay. Thank you very much there, Fab. And it, it, I, it's fascinating, isn't it? I, I often think I wonder what would have happened if we had been invaded you know, they're sort of twitchy. As a country, I just feel we're so mm. twitchy with our net curtains. And, you know, you look at people's complaints about their neighbours on next door and you just think, you know, I don't, I think we would have had plenty of people in this country who would have been complicit and sent their neighbours on long trains to Poland. You know, it's, you know, we weren't invaded, so we we never, you know, but that happened everywhere. It happened in France, happened in Holland, happened in Poland, um, happened in Germany. Absolutely. When you, when you look at, I mean, there's plenty of um, uh, tragedies going on in the world now, and we live in a in such a relatively peaceful and well-functioning society. 
and you think we're pretty much within our lifetime or, or certainly um, our grandparents' lifetime, this sort of thing, as you say, these sort of tragedies were on our doorstep. Um, and, and I think we're extremely lucky to be where we are. But, you know, you've had the conflict in Bosnia. Absolutely. You know, and that's, you know, that's just, you know, near neighbours in modern times. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I'll go and I'll, I'll go and have a look at certainly the last two, which I haven't read. Langley, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Likewise, Tom. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.